Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Big stories. Big guests. The Big Picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Rob Breckenridge. On today's episode, a closer look at how China's censorship is impacting the coronavirus situation. Also, cannabis vape products finally get the green light in Alberta. The debate around city council and expense claims one city council wants to put some limits on the whole situation. Plus, a PhD student at the University of Calgary leading the way on the discovery of a new tyrannosaur species found right here in Alberta. Now, certainly as countries like Canada respond to this coronavirus situation, any kind of a public health situation like this, there's a need for officials, authorities to be upfront, forthright, transparent about what the risk is, what they know, what they don't know, etc. But that's not the reality when it comes to China and how China is governed. And so certainly, yes, China is taking unprecedented steps to try and contain this outbreak. But all kinds of questions uh, should be asked and certainly have been raised about China's handling of the situation and whether they were forthright about when and how this outbreak began, whether they were taking steps not to respond to the situation, but to try to sweep it under the rug in the initial uh, days of this, and whether they're being forthright now about all of this. And certainly that's all coming to focus with the news that the doctor who had tried to warn about this outbreak, in fact, was punished by Chinese authorities for trying to warn about this outbreak, has himself died as a result of complications from this virus, or so, so we're told. So what does that tell us about how much trust we can have in Chinese authorities about whether they're being upfront about all of this? Because we are in a situation where we are reliant on China to try to contain this, uh, where we do have to take their word on what the reality of the situation on the ground is. But it doesn't appear as though Lessons have been learned in that sense, because this is exactly what happened during the SARS outbreak. And, and we seem to be witnessing some of these, these same patterns emerging in this. And, and that should be of concern. Well, someone who's been watching all of this very closely uh, joins us on the line here this afternoon. Sarah Cook is a senior research analyst for China, Hong Kong and Taiwan with the group Freedom House, freedomhouse.org. Sarah, thank you so much for making some time for us here. Welcome to the program. Sure, my pleasure. Uh, in terms of the, the uh, initial phase of this, when this uh, outbreak, when there were concerns first being raised about this outbreak, what, what's your sense then of, of how Chinese authorities were, were responding? Well, it seems very clear that local officials um, very much prioritized their own uh, set of political meetings, their own concerns over you know, whatever the latest uh, priorities were that they had to be worried about in terms of economic development and things like that over public health. And so it wasn't just Dr. Lee. There were a number of other doctors, eight in total, 
uh, that had uh, spoken, especially and particularly in like in pri- even in private chats, just to colleagues, saying that they had noticed these unusual um, cases of a SARS-like illness, and they were actually punished and reprimanded by the police for quote spreading rumors. Yeah. And and so you know they were trying to raise the alert, and a lot of people they were just trying to warn other colleagues to say, make sure you wear masks. This seems to be very contagious. And so, and that was in like, I think that was in December. I mean, this was like at least three weeks before uh, the Chinese government actually came forward and said, yes, there's human to human transmission. This is a big problem and we need to act fast. And then they went to the complete other opposite end of the spectrum and, you know, started quarantining multiple cities. Right, and, and certainly some claims were made uh, by the Chinese government about when this outbreak began, uh, the circumstances under which it began, and, you know, as you wrote uh, last week in the LA Times, some of that has turned out to be not the case at all. Yes, it seems, I mean, I think initially, you know, there's been a real emphasis on this particular seafood market in Wuhan, but when you look at some of the, as, as studies have come out to medical experts, including Chinese doctors, that have, you know, you, it's a situation where you have... Chinese doctors, Chinese journalists, people who are often silenced by the system, but I think in this situation are really trying to push the envelope and get real information out there. And so they are doing, you know, analyses of some of the case, the initial cases. And, you know, a good, a good percentage, it was something, I think 13 out of the 41 first cases had not had any contact whatsoever with the seafood market. So very quickly it became clear that there was some kind of, you know, human to human transmission that was taking place. And even in these, the doctors, like Dr. Lee, their early observations and their messages, you know, to colleagues and to each other indicate that that was part of what they were perceiving. But but initially, the Chinese government and Chinese officials were trying to, you know, seem, appeared to be playing that down and say, well, most of all the cases are, are really related to people who had some kind of contact with that seafood market. And only later did they did they note and did they admit that there is actual human-to-human transition, transmission. Mm-hmm. But the thing is that in that period, the local officials organized these like mass political meetings, these Chinese New Year celebrations. Five million people left the city, you know, during this really critical stage of, of the first few weeks when, when these, these cases were first noticed by, by medical by medical doctors. Right. And this this isn't new. I mean, you know, certainly uh, China was criticized during the SARS outbreak and and how they handled that. And, you know, as as you point out in your piece, that uh, when it comes to suppression of information in China, that suppression of public health information is one of the most censored categories of of news. So why is it that when it comes to public health that that officials in Beijing take such a a hard line in, in this area? I think because they realize the quote stability maintenance risk that the you know that this is the type of information that can really hurt their legitimacy, um, and and so there's and they really so they really want to control the message. Now there are also potentially you could say legitimate concerns about not raising public panic and things sure, like yeah. that, but the reality is that the actual censorship and the lack of transparency around these issues uh, creates more panic. <laughs> than if they were just transparent even about the bad news. Um, And I think if you look at the example of Taiwan and some of the messages and the updates um, and the the measures that the government there has taken, whether it's distributing masks or giving updates to people on this and that situation information, it's really been been so much better. And so you you just don't have the same level of public fear. And and, and so, you know, the censorship fuels more distrust in the government. Um, 
And and so I think one of the things, one of the things we have seen in the past on public health issues is it does galvanize people, people who might otherwise, you know, be okay with the Communist Party's authoritarian system when their babies start getting sick from tainted milk, um, or or when um, you know, or when there are other circumstances that that really touch on, on on vital life and death situations. And a lot of times, at the at the core of these public health problems, like in this case. There are very real governance problems. There are specific incentives related to how China is governed as an opaque, you know, um, political uh, Communist Party-run state that actually make public health problems and crises worse. And so then they have to censor that in order not to undermine the government's legitimacy. So I think it's that there's very much a, an intersection between, you know, public health news and how the government handles it and things that might make the government look bad, so then they just censor. Mm -hmm. Well, it it certainly seems they're going out of their way to censor any kind of critical um, narrative uh, of the official narrative. Uh, and especially it, it, as it pertains to Dr. Lee, that, uh, that, that certainly censors have been very busy trying to block, take down any hashtags or any messages of support and solidarity for, for Dr. Lee, uh, that they, they seem almost as concerned about containing that as they are with containing the actual virus. Why is it so important uh, to prevent any kind of spread of information about Dr. Lee or to prevent any kind of uh, praise or, or anything of the sort of Dr. Lee? I think certain types of praise they're okay with. And, in fact, you see Chinese state media kind of trying to piggyback uh, over the positive status and, and, and perception that people in China have. As a doctor who's working on the front line, you're not necessarily as a whistleblower. I think it's a, some, the, the whistleblower part of the story that the state media are trying to clamp down on. But I think the other thing you see in terms of the uproar online is that it very, very quickly veered into questions related to governance. And so you had, you know, in this brief window before the censorship really hit, you have a hashtag, I want free speech, that got millions and millions of hits and shares on the, one of the social media platforms in China. So I think that's what they're really afraid of, that this case, it's, it's, his case is so closely connected to people's sense of distrust in the government and the, the problematic dimensions of, quote, suppressing rumors. And, and, and restricting free speech, that this opens really a can of, a whole other can of words for the Chinese government. Right, and I suppose that could snowball. I mean, I think certainly you know people would realize or understand the risks of of sharing certain things on on social media that are going to contradict the the official line. But at the same time, I mean, obviously people are willing to take that risk and, and publicly praise this doctor as as a whistleblower. Did you think that 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 and in turn the criticism of how the government has handled this outbreak could it snowball into something bigger? You know, it's one of those situations that you, you kind of have to wait and see. I think the question of does this chip away at the Chinese Communist Party's legitimacy among a wide range of Chinese people who otherwise think of themselves as apolitical? Absolutely. Will that translate, how that translate concretely into actual real challenges for the Communist Party or, let's say, street protests? That's one of the things that, that, is, that is a little less clear, especially during the period of a of a viral outbreak. People aren't, don't necessarily want to amass in, in large numbers on the street. But, but I think it was a rare moment in terms of, I think, just you know, the scale uh, and, and the, 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 the number of people who, like I said, otherwise don't really think of, about the system, you know, the, the political system. They just kind of run or go along with their own day-to-day -day lives. And I think not just his death, but the whole situation with regards to epidemic, uh, I think has opened people's eyes. Uh, and, and made people think twice about 
about how the Chinese Communist Party actually governs China. Now, in the meantime, I mean, it's entirely possible that maybe China is now effectively responding to to this outbreak. But uh, to some extent or to a large extent, I guess we are kind of taking their word. And I mean, it's it's not helpful to have. Uh, their their credibility erode, and I mean, it does lend space to a more paranoid view that maybe things are far worse in in China than we're being led to believe. So, you know, in a situation like this, that kind of that kind of perception is is not helpful, is it? it it's not helpful, but I think people, you know, want to know what's what's really going on. I think one of the things that we see from I would say pretty authoritative sources in China, you know, credible sources, mm-hmm. uh, some very professional journalists. Um, who, you know, are at these magazines that kind of need to walk this line because their articles get deleted. But I think in a situation like this where it really is life and death, they're sending journalists, they're actually trying to investigate what's happening in Wuhan, other situations where you have citizen journalists. Um, in some cases, people are pretty well known as being credible sources of information, um, as well as, I think, you know, homemade videos, which are harder to verify. You know, it seems like there's very real reason to believe that, um, you know, that the number of deaths, in, 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 in Wuhan especially, and infections is higher. And some of that just goes to the question of what counts as a confirmed case, the, the, the limited number of actual testing kits that there are, the large number of people because of the hospitals overrun who aren't even able to go and be hospitalized to get tested. Um, it, it seems like quite credible that, that the, the numbers, uh, the official numbers are um, under, underplaying uh, what, what the actual uh, you know, impact has been on people's yeah. health. Um, but, you know, it's, it's very hard to get a, a comprehensive view of that. And so right now, I think a lot of me, you know, I think rightly so, you know, they're, they're relying on the Chinese government's uh, figures. But, but I certainly think that it's, it's, it's reasonable to take those with a grain of salt. Yeah, indeed. All right. Much more at freedomhouse.org. Sarah, thanks so much for your insight here. Appreciate making some time for us today. My, my, my pleasure. Appreciate it. Sarah Cook, uh, Senior Research Analyst uh, for China, Hong Kong, and Taiwan with uh, Freedom House, freedomhouse.org. All right, so we mentioned off the top today uh, some renewed questions around the uh, expensing that was going on uh, at the Federation of Canadian Municipalities Conference in Quebec City. But more to the point, the expenses being submitted by Councillor Joe Maglioka, uh, that his total expenses were far more than any other city councillors, uh, something he has apologized for. He's paid back some of that money. And in particular, some of the money that was spent on alcohol has raised some questions around whether alcohol is something that should ever be expensed by a a city councillor who's at an event like this. So the story today in the Calgary Herald uh, concerns the uh, individuals that he was meeting with. Now, eight politicians who supposedly had met with Joe Maglioka on these expense claims now saying that, that they didn't meet with him. So some questions being raised about, well, exactly who he was meeting with or what he was doing. So it's turned into a bit of a mess. But there, there are some broader questions here, I suppose, about how this all works and what city councilors are eligible to expense, what is expected of them when it comes to justifying and explaining those expenses. Well, tomorrow, a motion is going to be presented uh, at city council uh, to make some significant changes to all of that. And joining us on the line to talk more about it is uh, Ward 11 city councilor Jeremy Farkas. Jeremy, appreciate you making some time for us here today. I think it's twice this week. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it was. But, I mean, this has kind of come out of nowhere, I, I guess, and maybe this is long overdue, this conversation. What, what's, what is it about all of this that, I guess, you, you've been following and watching and uh, this has concerned you? Uh, so there, there's a number of different things. Uh, I'll, uh, 
maybe tackle first to head on some of the uh, concerns about Joe. So this is probably not going to make a lot of listeners happy, but uh, probably going to be a bit muted there. So I understand that uh, the whole situation is under review and investigation by the Integrity Commissioner. The allegations are damning and disappointing, if true, but... I want to allow the uh, investigation to run its course. So it turns out sometimes we we can speak out of turn without all of the facts at the table. And just out of uh, respect for the integrity commissioner, I don't feel it's appropriate to comment uh, uh, before the investigation is done. So after that, I I may have more to, to share, but it kind of returns to the fact that we're, we're at an all-time low when it comes to trust and confidence in this council. And I, I would say that uh, one of the scandals is why do we regularly send a dozen people on these trips? What's the value? So councillors definitely need to be accountable for the spending, and Calgarians are demanding better from this council, and it's well past time that uh, we give it to them. All right. And, and just to clarify, right, you, so you were also at this, this conference? No, I wasn't. Or you were not? Uh, for, for me, I really molded over. We're, we're at a really important time, I think, in our city, in our province, in our country. There is value to having us uh, out there, learning new ideas, advocating for our energy industry at this time more than anything else. But I don't think that it needs every single council member to go at very significant uh, expense. So the expenses for this conference totaled more than $30,000. And it's ridiculous that 10 members went uh, for this trip on taxpayers' dime without a real uh, accounting for what happened. So my motion that I'm going to be presenting tomorrow is on restricting council spending on the conference. So that means uh, spending caps, full disclosure of the costs, uh, a drastic reduction in the number of councillors who can attend, prohibiting the expensing of alcohol, and this one will be interesting, but requiring city councillors who attend to make a public presentation on what they learned upon their return. Well, let's touch on that one then, first of all, since you mentioned it. I mean, what what do you see as, as the value in that? So at the end of the day, there, there, there could be benefit to having Calgary's representation in terms of, uh, say, advocacy, uh, talking about uh, Calgary as a place to be able to invest, and learning from other municipalities in terms of how they do things. So I'm not uh, going to be so close-minded to say that there's no value. But at the end of the day, I really think it should be uh, the mayor who attends, uh, our FCM-appointed board director, and maybe one spare that uh, could help uh, schedule meetings in the interim. So it doesn't make sense to me to have 10 plus go when we can, uh, I think, get better results if we're much more focused, but with fewer people. Uh, and, and in terms then of a, a reasonable cap when it comes to uh, the amount of money that can be spent or, or expensed, I mean, how, how do you come up with a number? How do we make that determination on what's reasonable? So you're looking at a very significant cost to, to register for the conference. You're looking at uh, pretty expensive hotels to be in the conference venue. You're looking at uh, flights. What I did when I worked out that uh, $2,500 number was basically just tallying what I thought was reasonable in terms of uh, flying economy, having uh, modest accommodations and so on. And I feel that uh, really that is uh, it's doable within that envelope. So would this pertain only to these uh, FCM conferences? What about other events or other conferences or other travel that that city councillors have to do? So other council members uh, typically are not forced to do travel like this. There is the Alberta Urban Municipalities Association, but my understanding is that it provides an honorarium to the councillor to be able to offset those costs, and they don't actually have to uh, typically charge taxpayers. Other things that uh, council members may do uh, in terms of their own initiative is to attend uh, conferences here and there, but they're not actually forced to do so by by council. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, so the motion that's going to be presented tomorrow, is, is this something that, that uh, a change that city council can make right away? Or, I mean, is this something that administration's going to have to go back and, and review what, what can be changed or how this can all be changed? Oh, I'm sure that uh, there'll be an argument that it's uh, too much change too soon and uh, there's going to have to be a lot of study. But uh, what I'm hearing in terms of the phone calls, the emails that I'm getting is that Calgarians are demanding increased accountability and transparency. Council needs to demonstrate that every dollar is well spent and we, we desperately need to show that we're responding to this economy with real concrete changes in, in how we operate. So I may not feel that uh, my job is to go on these trips, given that my focus is really more here at home. I would much rather spend the money on a town hall meeting where I can look my constituents in the eyes and answer for how and why I voted at City Council. So this year, the uh, FCM conference is in Toronto, so you don't intend on going to that then? Uh, I don't. I Before I ran for council, I actually went uh, personally at my own expense uh, before I was a city councillor just to get a sense of what the the meeting is. So I'm not actually I'm not speaking about the meeting without actually having been there before. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that there is value in having uh, a handful of representatives, but not uh, a dozen city councillors at, uh, at perhaps dubious value. But at the end of the day, you know what, if a council member comes back from the strip and maybe if my motion passes, comes and makes a a very compelling argument, talks about all the things that they they said, they did, and they learned. Perhaps uh, City Council will be able to get Calgarians back on board with uh, the idea of sending every single member of Council. Uh, but yeah, and then further to that, I mean, I would assume, and, and your motion kind of concedes, that maybe there are already some arrangements in place for those who will be traveling to that conference this year. So if this motion is, is adopted, would it impact the, the travel this year, or is this more about 2021 and beyond? So I was chatting with my colleagues and I was taking a look at, well, who is scheduled? Uh, I don't want to get us on the hook for costly cancellation charges. Yeah. I would still have that uh, total uh, expenses capped, but uh, don't allow any new bookings besides the uh, council-appointed FCM representative. And then going forward, we would be uh, really limited to the, the two council members and or two councillors and the mayor going forward. So I'm open to reviewing this and perhaps there's some uh, negotiation that needs to be done on the exact amounts, but some things like, say, I think the spending on alcohol should be strictly prohibited. There's not really much justification in that. And uh, at the end of the day, though, I think that we need to operate more like a real business when it comes to increased accountability and transparency and just taking some of our cues from the private sector, households, entrepreneurs, businesses who have had to make very significant changes in how they operate in order to be able to survive and thrive in this kind of economy. Yeah. Oh, well, keep a close eye on that. Uh, tomorrow should be an interesting debate. Uh, Councillor Fargus, thanks so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Yeah, and let me know what you think. Shoot me an email at ward11 at calgary.ca. I'd love to hear from you all. Right on. Jeremy, thanks again. Appreciate it. Cheers. Jeremy Farkas, City Councillor for Ward 11. Uh, so we'll see how this debate goes tomorrow. What seems like, I think, some pretty reasonable changes. Maybe there's some frustration amongst those that uh, one City Councillor uh, kind of overdoes it, and then everybody else has to pay a price. But, I mean, these are some reasonable questions being asked. Does it, does it make sense to send all of city council to this meeting? Uh, does it make sense that they're able to expense as much as they are? So they'd be allowed to expense alcohol. Well, an update to a story we told you about a month ago. 
where the cannabis industry in Alberta was kind of blindsided by AGLC and uh, the rules around cannabis vape products. Those products are now legal for sale in Canada. But AGLC uh, suddenly told retailers in Alberta that they couldn't stock those products, that they were indefinitely postponed. Now, back in, uh, in the fall, the Alberta government announced that they were reviewing the rules around vaping. But they seemed to make it clear at the time that that was only e-cigarettes they were talking about. And uh, the industry, the cannabis industry, was assured of that at the time. Uh, so a lot of mixed messages and a lot of uncertainty for an industry that's uh, certainly gone through a lot of uncertainty. Well, this week we've learned that AGLC has given the green light now to cannabis vape products in Alberta. Joining us to talk more about all of this is John Carl, Executive Director of the Alberta Cannabis Council. John, thanks so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Rob, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, there have been a lot of twists and turns in this story. So how, how did we get to this point? Um, well, there, there's been a few things at play. And first, I'm just going to, uh, if you don't mind, I'm going to correct a statement that you made during the introduction sure. here. And, and that it wasn't the AGLC that made the decision to temporarily hold back the vape products. It was actually um, the Treasury and the Minister of Finance that made that decision. Oh, okay. Uh, well, I guess they would oversee that, AGLC. Yeah. But yeah, they give the directive exactly. then. Yeah, I see. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, AGLC has actually been really, really good for us to work with as an industry. So I just want to point out that they, you know. Yeah, no, that's an important that. clarification. <laughs> yes. Yeah, fair, fair enough. enough. Uh, and so, and that, was, that was last month, right? Um, yeah, it would have been probably December. December, okay. Yeah, yeah, it's been a while. Mm -hmm. So the way that we got to where we are right now is um, we, our our organization was able to meet with the Minister of Finance and we were able to talk with government about why they were withholding the vape products. And, And it all came down to a concern about public safety. They were concerned that Evali, the um, um, popcorn lung uh, that's been popping up across the United States, and we've had, I think, one instance now in Alberta, uh, they were concerned that that was caused by cannabis vaping. Fortunately, in the last two to three months, there's been an incredible amount of research into this done. Uh, the CDC down in the U.S. has released a excellent uh, review of the cause, and it's been identified as an additive that is put into uh, vaping products in order to maintain the consistency of the oil so that it's easier to smoke. Um, Health Canada approved products cannot contain these types of additives, so they are not the products that are at risk of causing Evali, which which is a horrible thing for anyone to contract. And, And the minister was very, very concerned that if we allowed vaping products on the market, that we would be putting Albertans' health at risk. So well, we were yeah, able to sit yeah. down with them and, and explain it, that the process that is actually only black market products that have uh, vitamin E acetate in them, that Health Canada approved products do not have them. And once we had that discussion and, and he understood that we were also looking out for the public health in this uh, by combating the black market and, and that we, you know, we don't want dangerous products on the market, he was able to and willing to move quite quickly in, in ensuring that the, the um, less dangerous products that Health Canada has approved were available to public consumers. And, and that decision came down on Friday. And it, we were really happy to hear him make that decision. Oh, that's good. So, I mean, it's suggesting that they were, were open to, to the evidence on this. 
I, I believe so, yeah. yeah. We, we had an excellent meeting with the minister and his staff, and, and certainly some eyebrows were raised when we pointed out some of the research that had been done and some of the information that we had. And, and if he's listening, I just want to say we're very thankful that he, he did meet with us and that he was receptive to good, solid fact. Um, and hopefully we won't see any more cases of, of that ailment in Alberta, and everyone wins. Right. Let's let's talk a bit more about that, because people do conflate these these two things and they hear about these illnesses and then they hear that we're going to allow cannabis vaping products to be sold in Alberta and people are going to make the link. And it's important to to explain here the difference. So these black market products and, and it's traceable back to a specific ingredient, right? Vitamin E acetate. That's right. And that is something that would not and is not included in in legal products. That's right. So Health Canada does regular inspections of cannabis products, as they do regular inspections of probably every product in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and if they were to find any of those additives in the product, they'd pull it from the shelves. So if you choose to vape cannabis, and let's be honest, there's a lot of people that are starting to vape cannabis these days. Uh, if you choose to vape cannabis, the Health Canada approved product is the safer way to go because it's essentially guaranteed to not have this stuff in it. Mm-hmm. But the black market stuff, the, this vitamin E acetate is a very cheap way to get the consistency right. So, I mean, they, they don't, don't care because they don't have to answer to Health Canada. Right. Right. Uh, so if you're going to yeah. smoke it, smoke the legal stuff. Yeah. And and it just for, for users, cannabis users, and, you know, choosing between smoking the product and vaping the product, uh, this, this was an option that, that a lot of people had been pushing for. Why to some is this a more attractive uh, option? That's a really solid question. Uh, I think it comes down to personal preference. Mm-hmm. Uh, vaping has become a very popular thing, particularly in the under 30 population. Um, I think that there's... You know, a, a desire for many people to to experience this different way of consuming, whether it be uh, cannabis or tobacco, or you know, it could be flavored. It, it, there's there's a lot of things going on there that that make it the new way of of doing things. Mm-hmm. All right, the new Coke of cannabis, if you will. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, now, I understand, too, because before the, the word came down from the Alberta government, I think AGLC had started stocking up some of these products. So do, do they have an existing inventory? How quickly is this going to get to retailers? I believe that they do, but being AGLC and the way that they have rolled out all cannabis products uh, over the last year and a half, they will roll it out incrementally. Uh, they're very concerned about the logistical process of making a product available. So they'll probably only roll out a portion of it to begin with. Mm-hmm. So if there's order shortages or mistakes or errors or bad product, they have a, a reserve in place to make sure that they're honoring the commitments that they're making. But just like we saw with edibles a few weeks ago, every week their order form will have more and more and more product available on it until they get to full full capacity. And they did the same thing back last October when, or I guess two Octobers ago now, when they originally released cannabis. There was a whole bunch of stuff that they could sell but they didn't make it all available. And we understand it's because of the logistics of making sure that they did it right. Yeah. It was interesting. I, word of, out of Ontario today, the uh, government there is exploring, uh, you know, the possibility of not just consumption zones like uh, Alberta has had, but also even potentially cannabis lounges. Is, is that something mm-hmm. that, that Alberta ought to be exploring? And now we have vaping products and edibles. Does that maybe lend itself to those, those kinds of arrangements? Well, absolutely. Um, cannabis and culinary delight 
are something that are, are becoming very popular to, to mix together. So you can have a three-course meal with cannabis in your appetizer and your main course and maybe a THC dessert, and, and it amplifies the flavor of that food. So in order to be able to serve that in your restaurant, we need some sort of a um, legislative framework to allow that to happen. Now, what we have to be conscious of though, with cannabis lounges is that these are not the the raves from the 90s, if you remember right. those, where this, this is completely different. I, I don't actually like the term lounge when associated with it because that brings to mind thoughts of, of alcohol consumption locations, mm-hmm. pubs and lounges and bars. And while there'll certainly be some of that going on, cannabis lounges will not be nightclubs. I mean, I, I don't know if you've ever used or not, but after you've had some cannabis, the last thing you want to do is get up and go dancing. <laughs> you tend to want to just chill out, mm-hmm. right? So restaurants, coffee shops, that sort of thing. Um, I spoke with one lady who actually wanted to get a license to, um, it, it would fall under a cannabis lounge environment, but she wanted a spa. Right, So you uh-huh. go in for your massage and your yeah. pedicure and everything, but you have some cannabis and you're even more relaxed in that bathtub than you normally would be. And the, the, the possibilities are, are really quite fascinating as to the creative ideas that Albertans are coming up with of how they want to use this product. Indeed. Well, we'll see what uh, the, the rest of the year has in store for us, John. We'll leave it there for now. More at albertacannabiscouncil.ca. Thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Appreciate it. Robert, appreciate it. Have a great day. You too. That's uh, John Carl, Executive Director of the Alberta Cannabis Council, albertacannabiscouncil.ca. Our number here, 403-974-8255. We are back with more right after this. Another big story in town today. This is an interesting one. Uh, and it, I guess it's it's worth noting that in the field of paleontology, there are still big discoveries to be made. And a pretty big one has been made uh, right here in our province. In fact, researchers at the University of Calgary. It was a Ph.D. student uh, who led this discovery, a new species of tyrannosaur. Uh, so it's pretty cool how this happened, and a PhD student being at the center of having this paper published and discovering this new species. Well, joining us to talk more about it is the aforementioned a PhD student in the Department of Paleontology at the University of Calgary. Jared Voris is his name. Jared, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Yeah, thank you for having me. This almost seemed kind of surreal to you, I would imagine. It, it is indeed, yes. Uh, it was quite a discovery just to kind of realize that this was something new when we uh, just kind of noticed it in the cabinets at the Royal Trail Museum. Yeah, and that's the thing, right? I mean, I think people hear about a new dinosaur being discovered. They picture, you know, a team out in the field somewhere and dust blowing around and, and everything. But this was something that was sitting in a drawer. So tell us a bit more about where this came from and how you made this discovery. Yeah, so the specimen was actually originally discovered um, by the family of John and Sandra de Groot of uh, Hayes, Alberta. And they actually found it with their family when they were walking along the shoreline of the Bow River. And, uh, yeah, so they found the fossil, and then they alerted the Royal Trail Museum to the fact that what they had found. And then uh, it just kind of, from then on, it just kind of sat in the cabinets for a while until uh, I came by during my master's degree about two years ago, and I noticed that there were some features on this animal that made it unique. Um, what's more, we realized that it came from a time period that was earlier than any of the, any of the other Tyrannosaur fossils that we knew of from the province. And so... Um, just started looking at the fossil and then realizing that some of those differences were indicative of it being uh, a new species of tyrannosaur that we ended up naming uh, Thanatotheristes dugrutorum, uh, with the species named dugrutorum being named after the family who found it. 
Uh, and the first part of that roughly translates, I understand, to Reaper of Death. Is that yes, right? That is, that is correct. <laughs> yeah, we wanted a name that would kind of encapsulate the, the apex predatory lifestyle of uh, this Tyrannosaur, if you will. Right, and, and by all accounts, then, this would have been quite the, uh, quite the fierce creature. Yeah, so the animal would have been roughly eight feet in length. The the skull of this animal would have, or sorry, not eight feet, eight meters in length. And the skull of this animal would have been um, somewhere around 80 centimeters or just under a meter in length. And so, yeah, it would have been quite an imposing animal. Definitely not something that I personally would have want to run into on just my casual everyday stroll. Um, that being said, it wasn't quite as large as T-Rex. Nothing, None of the Tyrannosaurus mm-hmm. seemed to be quite as big as T-Rex. But this still would have been, uh, again, the apex predator of its ecosystem. It would have hunted um, horned dinosaurs and duck-billed dinosaurs, those sorts of things. So once you've got a hunch or an inkling that there's something unique about this fossil, what, what's the process from there? So the kind of the process there is to start looking at other dinosaurs that it's related to. And so in this case, we were looking at a whole bunch of other Tyrannosaur species from Alberta, as well as uh, for, of other species from elsewhere in the world, so including uh, the southern U.S. and even some casts of some specimens from Mongolia. And so then when we were just kind of looking at those, then the next step is to start to write about those features, so kind of what makes it unique. And that's exactly what we did here, where we just started to um, identify some of those features, write them down, and then we ended up submitting it to the journal. Uh, And then it goes through a peer review process where uh, other researchers who are somewhat associated with the research that you're doing or experts in that field will kind of assess the, uh, the scientific merit of your study. And then from there, if it goes through well, then it will be published in the journal and the species becomes uh, valid through science. And, and this is, you know, I mean, there's obviously a lot of luck in making a discovery like this. I think it's been about 50 years, I think I read, since the, the last new Tyrannosaurus species was, was found. Uh, and there wasn't a lot here to go on. So, I mean, does that suggest that maybe this particular fossil, that there's kind of a rarity here? Or, or what do we know about this, this species? Or what can we conclude, I guess? Yeah, so the so this Tyrannosaur comes from a rock unit that has very few fossils from it. Um, it's called the Foremost Formation, mm-hmm. um, and there are yeah. So far, there's only been two other dinosaur species named from this formation. One is a horned dinosaur called Xenoceratops, and the other is a dome-headed dinosaur, a pachycephalosaur called uh, Calepiocephaly. Um, and fossils from this rock unit are actually again pretty rare. So it was kind of lucky that this one was found. Um, again, yeah, it wasn't. It's not the most complete animal, but it does have features which we can use to make it, which we identify as it being uh, unique or features that have not been seen in in any other Tyrannosaur uh, individual out there. Um, So, yeah, that makes it kind of unique. And something that's interesting and kind of, I guess, disheartening in a way is that um, we actually found parts of the animal that were like cast or uh, mold, sorry, of the individual teeth row when the tooth was articulated. And we have them from both sides on the same rock. And we also have those same things for the upper jaws as well. And so what it actually means when we look at those together with all the fossils that we found, we actually realize that the skull at one point in time would have probably been uh, fairly complete. Maybe there was even uh, a fairly complete skeleton. And unfortunately, uh, when it fell out of the cliff face and rolled down into the riverbank, um, after several years of just kind of sitting there, the rivers flooding and whatnot kind of washed those away. And now we were only left with uh, parts of the lower jaw and parts of the upper jaw and a few other fragmentary bones here and there. So unfortunately, it would have made it probably would have been a much 
more complete animal and would have been really intriguing to find. But uh, with what we have now, we can see that it was a unique animal. And so now our next step is to try and find more of this animal um, and see exactly what else makes it unique. You think there are more fossils out there, though? I do think there are more fossils out yeah. there. It's just going to be a matter of time before we find them or before somebody finds them. And um, I really, I hope that people maybe will, if they start finding fossils from rock units that may be corresponding to this date, they'll contact the Royal Child Museum and uh, maybe we can find a complete animal or a complete fossil of one of these animals uh, someday in the near future. And, and so is the focus then specific to this particular uh, species, but others maybe as well? What about the foremost formation itself? Yeah, so again, this is just kind of it's highlighting again that there are dinosaur fossils in this formation where previously there's been very few known. Um, and it, we know from teeth, so fossils of teeth, that there are other dinosaurs in this formation. So we know that there are duckbill dinosaurs there based on um, teeth and fragments of bones from found here and there, uh, but we don't yet know what species they belong to. And it's possible, like other formations in the province, there were actually two Tyrannosaur species in this formation. We don't know yet. We don't yet know, but it's something that we that we're intrigued by and we want to find out. So we're we're still looking for fossils in that formation, and perhaps we can actually find some more in the future. Maybe a a different Tyrannosaur species that kind of coexisted with this one, something like what we see in Dinosaur Provincial Park. Yeah. Well, and I, and I gotta say, I mean, it's exciting. Obviously, then the, you know the, we're we're still making these discoveries, and I wonder if there's a perception. Maybe you've encountered the perception that. It, there, you know, there's nothing left to be discovered in, in paleontology, right? Why are you getting right. into this now? They they found all the dinosaurs already. Oh, I actually got that a lot as a kid. Like when I was like telling people this is what I wanted to do. But um, no, there are still discoveries to be made out there. And in fact, a lot in recent years, there's been kind of a resurgence in paleontological research, especially in rock units where they've been kind of overlooked in the past. So um, where most museums used to kind of want to go to this one place that's called this one formation was called the Hell Creek Formation, and that had some of your uh, more famous dinosaurs like Triceratops and Tyrannosaurus rex. And that's where museums wanted to go because they all wanted their own T-Rex or Triceratops skeleton. Nowadays, paleontologists are starting to look in other rock units like um, the Foremost Formation or other places where we may, don't have, we may not have any fossils known from this root unit or we may not have any known dinosaurs yet, but we found isolated fragments of bones. So we're starting to really look in those formations in those time periods where we don't really know a lot. And there's definitely new discoveries being made and new species of dinosaurs are being named uh, almost on a weekly basis nowadays. Um, so it's always really interesting to just kind of see what discoveries are being made next week or even what maybe what major discoveries are going to be made within the year. Yeah, well, it's uh, very exciting. The University of Calgary living up to the dino's nickname. And um, yeah, big moment for you. Congratulations again, Jared. And uh, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Yeah, thank you for having me. There you go. Jared Voris, uh, PhD student in dinosaur paleontology, which is within the Department of Geoscience at the University of Calgary and the aptly named dinos. Uh, so, yeah, congratulations to him. Published in the Journal of uh, Crustaceous Research on the new uh, Tyrannosaur. The uh, Reaper of Death coming to haunt your dreams. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, Rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.